This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Sleep hot. Mattress Firm's sleep experts can match you with a cooling mattress from the Temper Breeze Collection from Tempur-Pedic, so you can experience measurably cooler sleep all night. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale. Sleep at night. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. It's a big weekend for Black cinema. The new Black Panther movie is now in theaters, and another groundbreaking movie dropped this weekend. It's one of the most thoughtful, ambitious, and inventive celebrations of Black cinema or American cinema I've ever seen. It's called... Is that black enough for you? Is that black enough for you? It changes, it morphs, it has several meanings. Is that black enough for you? It ain't, but it's gonna be. (laughs) It's the history and the cultural ramifications of black film from 1968 through 1978. That's the director and creator, Elvis Mitchell. He's one of the most prominent film critics of our time, and he also happens to be the host of The Treatment on KCRW. Is That Black Enough For You is his new Netflix documentary, and it has completely retooled how I think about black cinema from that time. The same way that these movies or that period that get talked about so much are considered to be not just movies, but revolutionary in terms of the way they dealt with culture, these black films were too. I talked to Elvis about the innovation of black filmmakers from the 60s and 70s, why black exploitation films don't get their due, and how one black classic actually led to the downfall of this iconic era. Throughout the film, actually, we hear actors talking about the characters that they saw on screen that they wanted to be like. You know, one very memorable moment is when Samuel L. Jackson talks about how he knew that the characters that he would see on screen weren't even ideal, but he still wanted to be them. He still felt like they were on some level, I don't know if aspirational is the right word, but but he wanted he wanted some part of the lifestyle that they had. Alfalfa, buckwheat, stymie, but I still wanted to be them. Right? What were the characters that you saw in, in films from the 60s, 70s, or even earlier that like, what are the films that you saw early on in your life? that had characters that you wanted to emulate or be like? I guess I, film wasn't aspirational for me in that way. I was really an audience. But I can certainly understand when Sam says stuff like, you know, growing up where he did in Georgia, well, why, why don't you have white playmates? The movies forced me to ask questions. Like, I remember as a kid, the thing that Whoopi Goldberg says in the movie that I think almost everybody I knew kind of intuited one way or another, which is you saw a horror movie and there were no black people in it. You go, oh, we left already. We knew the blob was coming. We knew Godzilla was en route. I mean, we, all these sorts of things that become this kind of found wisdom that inform what's not there. It sure made it hard to fall in love with the movies. But that's often the perspective we have as people of color looking at pop culture, loving this thing that doesn't really love us back. Mm, certainly, certainly. Absolutely. I'm curious, though. I want to ask you, did you have these figures that you wanted to be when you were growing up? You saw them. The, oh, gee. Can I be part of the Brady Bunch? Barbie rejected that because I just thought, this stuff is so white. I can't even begin to deal. But huh. were there things like that for you? Well, that's a really good question. Of course. Um, waiting to exhale. I'm 33 years old. Ooh, good. And I still look good. I don't think I should have been seeing Waiting to Exhale, but the portions that I saw that I wasn't supposed to see when somebody had rented it and told me to cover my eyes, that was maybe... The first movie I think that I saw that I was like, oh, I want to be like Angela Bassett or Lila Rochelle. I want to set a car on fire 
and walk away. <laughs> you were just going to stir up some trouble then. But you, you, as you talk about waiting to exhale, I actually have a story about that. That uh-huh. uh, when I played here at the in LA at the Magic Johnson Theaters, I was living here then, and there were people lined up around the multiplex. I mean, it's I never seen anything like that there before. And it was sold out for the entire weekend. So we sit down, and I don't know if you had this phenomenon happen where you saw it, but there were women who would dress as if they were going to church, sitting with dog-eared copies of the book as the soundtrack was playing in the theater, and they were singing along, you know, shoop, shoop, and all that. And then three trailers came up. I'll never forget this. The first trailer was Girl 6. Woo! Go ahead, Spike. Do it again, Spike. Go ahead, Spike. Second trailer was Will Smith and Independence. Woo! Go ahead, Will. Say it, Will. Go ahead, yeah. Will. And the third trailer was Othello. Yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die. This hush falls over the audience. Yes. And this one woman says, I know Larry Fishburne ain't about to kiss that white woman. I just blurted out, it's Othello. And because it's the Magic Johnson Theater, the house lights are only down like 40%, so everybody can see everything. So they're looking around. So I slinked down and pointed to my white friend who was going, wait, what? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. That I have to say, running Othello as a trailer before waiting to exhale, it's interesting. It's interesting you to be see, assumption. You would see be, the idea what they're trying to do. You know, I see three, the idea. It's three black films, and we're talking about this so often this paucity that exists in terms of studio affair for people of mm-hmm. color. So you would connect, well, it's black people. It's a black person in Othello, right? Probably not the ideal thing to show it to an audience full of black women who are like channeling this righteous anger that they picked up from waiting to exhale and they're about to watch cars being burned by a guy who went off with a white woman. Ooh, white woman's probably the only one who tolerates your smug ass. I don't know about this. I mean, I'm not kidding you. You can hear that kind of, that gasp of extras never get right in the movies. <gasps> <laughs> and a lot of this. I don't know. A fan. I don't, what this documentary covers is something that I always wanted an under like a clear understanding of. In the documentary, you kind of go from Sidney Poitier to black exploitation to Spike Lee. And what this film does, I think, really well is connecting all of the different dots and sort of creating this constellation of Black film, Black filmmakers, Black actors, who, and seeing not just how they were all connected, but how Black cinema from that 68 to 78 period was influential across, I'd say, like cinema as a whole. I felt like that, why I loved watching this documentary is because I think I felt like previously that argument hadn't been laid out so thoroughly before in this type of format. That's really kind of you to say. Thank you. When you talk about movies, the conversations usually come with footnotes. You can't talk (laughs) about this movie and not mention that movie and then not mention this thing, not mention this piece of music and this other performance that you saw because they're all intertwined. What I've always believed to be the case, Brittany, is that Black films don't get their due in terms of whenever there's that clip reel that turns up in the Oscars or whatever, mm-hmm. there's all these the great movies, the Spider-Man hanging upside down for the kiss. Do I get to say thank you this time? And invariably there's... They call me Mr. Tibbs. 
that's the black film. Just so you know, <laughs> that there's a black film in there, and it's usually that. Yeah. Why not have Why not have that clip of my God? You fall in love watching Ivan Davis, Ivan Dixon rather, and Abby Lincoln, and Nothing But a Man, a movie right. made in 1964 with a Motown score. Or why don't you see Billy D. Williams lean into the frame, and you start to see the sparkle glinting. The, the, the lights gleaming off his manicure before he even says a word. Somebody pointed this out to me yesterday, and I was thrilled that somebody got it. There's a compendium reel at the beginning of the, the movie, so this, this, this montage, and there's a character from Vibe on the Black Hand side, an adaptation of the play, who says, I ain't giving up nothing but bubblegum and hard time, and I'm fresh out of bubblegum. <laughs> And somebody said to me yesterday, this, this writer from Detroit News, my hometown, said, did you do that because that's a line from the movie They Live, the John Carpenter film? I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Absolutely. So people know that that line existed before they saw it in They Live. So much of this movie is about as you're saying, creating that kind of ta- context. Coming up, Elvis Mitchell on how exploitation films completely changed Hollywood movie soundtracks. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com slash NPR today to get 10% off your first month. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. You spent a lot of time in the documentary talking about the black exploitation period of black exploitation films. It seems to me, it's always seemed to me that people didn't take black exploitation films seriously. But there are so many aspects of that genre that were influential across all American cinema. Uh, for example, even the way that they utilize soundtracks. I mean, can you lay out the influence of black exploitation films on movie music, both creatively and from a marketing standpoint? Well, the thing is, it gets back to what we were talking about. You know, I, the, for me, the, con- the movie's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Isaac Hayes, he's once one time in the West because the air conditioning goes out in stacks. And he he can't record hears, the heat. <laughs> yeah, he hears that. And he, yeah, they get out of that awful heat and sees that piece of music. And then uses that, in effect, samples it to create Walk On By. Gordon Parks hears Walk On By and goes, this guy should be making movie music. Because this is a because when you hear that opening overture and walk on by, you go, oh my god! It, it's almost in the same key as a piece of music from Once Upon a Time in, in the West. And when I met Isaac Hayes, I said to him, "So was that intentional?" He goes, "Oh, we were about eight notes shy of being actionable. It was definitely intentional." then Gordon Parks brings him in to do Shaft. And suddenly, that becomes this phenomenon, the way that music movie soundtracks generally did not. Mm-hmm. So often, movie soundtracks were, in the old days were these things that came from 
Broadway show, so you got a chance right. to see the movie version of that. Or there are these European scores because these these moguls who started the studios want to have these people create music that was like the classical music that was part of their childhoods. Mm. And, and something might pop every once in a while, but it was a Beatles soundtrack or an Elvis Presley soundtrack, that kind of thing. So those who were pop stars who had audiences going in that weren't related to the soundtrack. So those mm. were fluky. And then when it comes time around to do Superfly, and Curtis Mayfield released the soundtrack on his label, and nobody told him you don't release the soundtrack first. Because oh we just never care. So it comes out about a month early. And what happens is it becomes this immediate commercial for the movie because it's immediately huge. This enormous crossover thing. And Callie said it's one of those rare cases where every single from the album is released. So every few weeks you've got like another song from the Superfly soundtrack keeping the movie alive. And did people learn that lesson? Well, maybe not right away, but eventually they did. And so by the time the 80s and 90s come around, you know, the soundtrack is released first. There are music videos made. It becomes this way to create awareness for the movie that came out of this period. I mean, it just takes us back to Waiting to Exhale and those women sitting in the theater singing, shoop, shoop, because they've been listening <laughs> to the soundtrack and watching the video before the movie came out. One of the things that the film made me long for I feel like a lot of the films discussed in your documentary were, they felt edgier and, and maybe less concerned with respectability than, than the type of film I feel like has been pitched or marketed to me as a consumer or viewer. How do you mean? Because I, I want to make sure I understand. Because I think what you're getting at something really interesting. Well, I feel like not all the time, but it feels like more frequently the types of films starring Black people that get a lot of attention have to do with like a historical figure, something having to do with like getting married and falling in love or like some sort of redemption arc or a sports drama, like like very respectable films. And I don't mind films like that. I love them just as much as the next person. But I find that, that the older I get, the more I want to be surprised when I watch a movie. Like I want to go in and be like, oh, well, that was new. Like that was something I haven't seen before. And I remember watching The Watermelon Man for the first time a few years ago, which you mentioned in the documentary, which is directed by Melvin Van Peebles. And it's like, I mean, if if you liked white chicks, you're going to love The Watermelon Man. But <laughs> That may be the greatest sales pitch I've ever heard in my entire life. If you like, I mean, is, is that the Amazon bot? If you like white chicks, you'll love Watermelon Man. I found it to be so edgy. It's about this this white man who is an executive and, and lives with his wife and children in the suburbs. And, and he wakes up one day to find that he's turned into a black man. Ah! Yes, 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 there's a Negro in your shower! It is not a Negro! Yes, The performance by the main actor, Godfrey Chambers? Godfrey Cambridge. Godfrey Cambridge. Godfrey Cambridge, yes. Uh, Godfrey Cambridge, who also shows up at various different points throughout the documentary. Cotton comes to Harlem. He was a stand-up comedian who was also an actor, yeah. Yeah, and he was so, so, so funny. But he was, I mean, the physical comedy was amazing. I mean, but also the subtlety with which he would deliver certain lines or tell certain jokes. There was a real sophistication to the film that I appreciated. It felt like... I don't know. I felt like the film respected the audience's intelligence and wasn't afraid to go there with certain jokes, but in a way that had like some finesse to it. Whereas sometimes I feel like 
the films that maybe Hollywood wants to put the most weight behind with regard to black audiences have like um, can sometimes have a corniness or a goofiness to them. Don't you think that's movies in general, though, that have this kind of fear yeah. of, of, of alienating audiences? And if, when you get to that sort of thing of a black film, they really and they feel they don't know what they're doing. They're nervous about are we going to offend white audiences? Who's going to come out for this? Then it becomes understandable that not just understandable, but I know where that comes from. And Watermelon Man was Melvin Van Peebles just bringing his own aesthetic to a studio comedy and saying, this is what I'm going to do. And But Melvin was always wanted to make the movies that Melvin wanted to make. And, and there probably was a little more room for that 50 years ago than certainly there is now. A lot of these films, again, the example of Superfly was made independently because nobody's going to mm-hmm. give somebody the money to go make that kind of movie. But then you see Three the Hard Way. Which, again, sounds like a loony premise. It did to me as a kid seeing it, thinking, oh, somebody's going to try to kill all the black people with chemicals. Then my dad tells me about the Tuskegee experiments. Like, right. Oh, 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 I see. So this is, oh, so this is about something. So there are people who say that these movies didn't have politics, but that's, I don't know if you get more political than using an action adventure vehicle to deal with the repercussions and black paranoia and going into medical clinics. There are all these kinds of things that these movies help to keep alive. And to your point about them being kind of edgy and not apologizing for what they were trying to do and being made independently. I mean, I, I mentioned this movie, Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, where the filmmaker is making a, a movie, but also making a movie about the making of the movie. And he's trying to play people against each other just to play with what the possibilities of film are. We can't see that movie and not think that somehow or another that didn't make its way into the water supply and get to Sasha Baron Cohen or mm. Eric Andre. I mean, for me, there's so many points of, of influence that happen in these movies. So many things that we're still reckoning with 50 and almost 60 years later that these movies just opened up these ways of thinking about the culture. You know, it, 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 it was so satisfying to watch this. What well, felt like a depiction of an explosion of all this creativity among so many different artists across so many different genres. But then toward the end of the film, you say that this period of black film kind of ends with the release of the Wiz in 1978, which I mean, I grew up with that as a classic. <laughs> so I was, but shocked. you never left your house to see it. See, right. I never left my house to see it. When you were watching your sister's VHS <laughs> with her, easing exactly. on down the road with her and Michael Jackson and Nancy Russell, but when you see that movie in a movie theater, and I just, The Wiz is just thing, clearly all these hopes were riding on it. And in the doc, The Wiz is named as the film that ended this amazing era of black movies because it was this big budget film that flopped. But it takes me back to this thing that, this feeling I've always had, which that there is no, black film itself is a genre. So there is no black musical. It's a black film. There is no black romantic comedy. It's a black film. So when these films fail, they don't fail as genre films. They fail as a black film, which is to say, oh, well, nobody wants to see that black film. I guess they don't want to see black films anymore. And there was an executive who once said to me, yeah, they don't want to, blacks don't want to see themselves in historical dramas. And I said, based on what? How many black people you know? <laughs> Generally, when there's a big success, what do people do? They imitate it. So... We have coming out the same day as my movie's released, so nobody's going to see my movie, <laughs> the Black Panther sequel. 
But, you know, I remember talking to people when that movie came out and people, oh, my God, this is going to be this whole new explosion in black film. They're going to be these imitations of Black Panther. And I said, I'm sorry to be the one to disagree with you, but I do not think that is going to happen. I would love to be proven wrong about this. And it's been, what, four years since the first Black Panther and The Woman King? That's kind of it, but that's a historical action mm. film. I mean, what's been the invitation of Black Panther, a movie to be the first Marvel film to be nominated for Best Picture that makes over a billion dollars? My fear is that we're not that far away from The Wiz, you know, where there's just the one failure that betokens bringing down the entirety of Black film. I mean, it, it always feels to me like a pretty precarious position that Black film is in. How would you characterize the moment that Black American cinema is in right now? It always feels to me to be precarious because we do get this thing, this cycle every, you've lived through a couple of them now, even you. <laughs> every 10 years, you know, Black film is back. Well, where did it go? But no, no, now Black film is back. I understand. But it didn't go anywhere. But Black film is back. It hasn't been anywhere. It's always been here. But there is this binary aspect to the way that Black popular culture has always been reported on. It's either here or it's not. It's big or it's not. There is no, really, not much room for nuance in that conversation. And for black film, as often as not, it's got to be about the phenomenon of getting the film made and what you have to do and how you have to play the system. Because otherwise, it's just the black movie and maybe people don't want to cover that in that way. Elvis, thank you so much for joining me today. This was, it was, it was a great experience of watching the film. It felt like an essay, a celebration, and it's definitely a historical document. So I really appreciate you coming and talking with me about it. This has been a thrill for me to do this and talk to you about this, especially hearing your perspective on all this, Brittany. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Elvis Mitchell. Is That Black Enough For You is out now on Netflix. Coming up... I talk with Bashir Salahuddin and Diallo Riddle about the creation of HBO Max's Southside and why parody can be a form of love. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. During the darkest days of lockdown, my husband and I discovered a little show called Southside. It's a workplace comedy set in Chicago, and it's about two best friends, Simon and Kareem, who are trying to make a difference in their neighborhood. But Chicago has other plans. Check him out. Mm-hmm. If the word shady was in the dictionary, this dude's picture would be next to it. Shady is in the dictionary. Half <laughs> the people who shop here are shady. I just have the guy wearing jeans on top of jeans get some office chairs. Oh, damn, that's Fred. He doing that jean on jean again? Wiggle! <laughs> Southside was one of the few things back then that could reliably have me and my husband laughing to the point of tears. We enjoyed it so much that we would ration out one episode per night. The mastermind creators behind the show are Bashir Salahuddin and Diallo Riddle. And after I started Southside, I immediately wanted to mainline everything they'd ever made, which led me to another show of theirs, The Hilarious Sherman Showcase, which is now in its second season. Sherman Showcase is a musical mockumentary send-up of variety shows like Soul Train and American Bandstand. The host is Sherman McDaniel, played by Bashir. Now, our first guest took a year off to find himself in the motherland, St. Louis. But now he's back to debut his new song, That Ain't Right, the incomparable Jackie Redmond. Comedy is subjective, of course, but 
What I love about both Southside and Sherman Showcase is how they're able to build a big, silly joke around a very particular reference and still make everyone feel like they're in on it. Why do you think audiences respond to such specific humor if we're told that audiences are more likely to embrace the broad? We had this really great moment years ago with Chris Rock. We happened to be in the same building. Um, and he just said, like, you know, the, the secret is you got to just let funny people be funny. So to that point about specificity, there are TV shows where when somebody like our writer Evan Williams pitches a really specific bit where the leadership mm-hmm. of those shows would go, oh, America won't get that. Where we go, mm. the bottom line is, are we laughing? The rule is quite simple. If the room is laughing at it, we're going to take a shot on it. Taking those shots has seemed to pay off for Diallo and Bashir. And on today's show, I'm going to talk to them about why their fearless, incisive style of comedy is such a hit with audiences and how sometimes parody can be the highest form of love. The Sherman Showcase and Southside, they're both very specific mm-hmm. worlds. Mm-hmm. Like Sherman Showcase is a send up of, of 70s, 80s music programs like Soul Train and Solid Gold. Mm-hmm. Southside is a slice of modern day Black Chicago. Mm-hmm. What drew you to want to turn each of those worlds into a TV show? I'll talk about Southside and Diallo will talk about Sherman's because for each of our projects, we found that one of us kind of has to be the captain of the project. It's how the partnership, I think, is able to thrive in that there's always got to be somebody who has the ability to kind of steer the ship. You know, we always felt like the funniest people in your life are like those cousins and family and friends. And so our thought was, Let's put the people in front of the camera who make us laugh, mm. right? And so we ended up working with my buddies from high school, my brother, you know, Dial's on the show, you know, other friends and family have kicked in. And so what you're feeling is us saying, hey, we're letting Chicago speak for itself. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are a funny city. We're a silly city. And we're a city that is somewhat maligned in the press sometimes. Mm. But when you're from Chicago, I mean, Dial always tells a story about, you know, landing there and having this Uber driver talk to him about shooting. So that was, that's a big moment for us. This is at a time when I literally everybody from politicians to the news, it seemed like everybody was just like, you know, Chicago's a, a violent hellhole and all this mm-hmm. kind of talk. Mm-hmm. And so when he asked me that, I didn't know if he was like mad that we were shooting a, a comedy about Chicago. But I answered truthfully. And he was like, thank you. He said, thank you. He's like, mm-hmm. people need to know the truth about the South Side. They need to know the truth about all the funny people that we got in this city. And that's how we knew that we were on the right path. Mm -hmm. And what about Sherman Showcase? Both of these ideas were sort of born out of, you know, those times of being out here Mm. and learning the trade through 10,000 hours of working, Mm. you know. And we were at um, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, which was our first big break in TV. Yep. And uh, Bashir was was regaling the audience every night with with these characters and, and his wonderful voice. And there was one time when we came off, you know, he had played sort of a, I don't know if it was more James Brown or it might have even been more like. It was like the Temptations of the Jackie Neptune and all that, yeah. Yeah, it's a little more <laughs> like the Temptations. And uh, me and Jimmy played his backup singers, you know, afterwards, me and Bashir standing there in these ridiculous costumes. And we were like, what if we could do this all the time? But we didn't even have the limitation of doing songs that have to appeal to an NBC audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was what we were trying to do with Sherman Showcase was do something that was a little more edgy. We wanted to do uh, a show that would be for people of all stripes who just really appreciate that in the weeds, you know, humor. Yeah, I think both Southside and Sherman Showcase rely heavily on on parody. And, and no matter how off the rails the plot of an episode will go, it always works because you nail the details mm-hmm of the characters and the environment. Like 
the Sherman Showcase bit from the new season that features actors playing the iconic women of Bad yeah. Boy, <laughs> plotting on how they can get their money back from Diddy. <laughs> All right, y'all, listen up. Diddy been stealing from us for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now it's time that we get what we're owed and dare some. I mean, when I see Brisha Webb, who's hilarious, hilarious. Actor, she's so, so funny, nailing Mary J. Blige, like down just to like the facial expressions. How do you approach capturing so many of those little details? I think that on both shows, we go out of our way to go to the height of our intelligence, but we also hire really intelligent, really funny writers. And I'm always impressed and in love with the ideas that come mm-hmm. from others. That sketch is again, sort of, it's born from a conversation around a table of a whole bunch of people who love that era of music. Mm. So with that sketch, the jokes about Farnsworth Bentley and the joke about I'll be sure and the joke about even Mary just using the the lightsaber, which was a viral YouTube thing. Oh my gosh. I'll be creating a diversion like this. <laughs> it makes it so the comedy is deeper, more enjoyable, mm-hmm. more specific. Um, you know, and so often with comedy, I feel like we're told that broad is what sells. But a lot of the funniest bits of both shows hit because they're so specific. Mm-hmm. Like the Sherman Showcase commercial break where you have Frederick Douglass selling Stacey Adams shoes, which, you know, for <laughs> listeners who may not know, those are staples of the fly black uncle wardrobe. Come on now, you know. <laughs> Look at me. I'm an abolitionist. And you best believe when I crossed the Mason-Dixon line, I was wearing the finest shoes I could afford. Well, what were you wearing? I was barefoot. I see. No, you don't see. Now you see. Stacy, Stacy Adams. That's right. I, the, that I think that you can't have specificity without study, and I don't yeah. think study comes without care. And I think what makes both shows so successful as parodies is that there's real love and care in there too. Like, how does your love for your subject factor into your creative process? One of my favorite descriptions of, uh, of Sherman Showcase is that Sherman Showcase is a conversation among music nerds. You know, I remember when we were at Jimmy Fallon. You would go down to the Roots room because the Roots have a, little, a practice room. It was little back then. Now it's quite big. And Questlove is like, in some ways, he's like our spirit. You know, I don't want, you know, he's like, he's like, he is our guru because he's got the nerd. He's definitely a music nerd. He's also, you know, sci-fi comedy nerd. Obviously, he loves music and loves black music. And so you have to imagine like him and especially him and Dial. There were some long hours, long conversations. And so Dial, in some ways, is grafting those conversations onto this TV show. And those conversations have to be specific. But I think what you're also noticing in that specificity is just all the love. But I do think it comes out of this thing where they see our passion, they see our love, and they know we're coming at it from the point of view of people who love this stuff and not people making fun of it. But it also comes from, I would say, even it's it's people's lives. You know, we had heard that, for example, in this old Seinfeld room, they would start their season with just saying like, hey, you know, what, what did you guys do in the summer? What are you laughing at? And I think we do that with both of our shows. And Seinfeld is the king of like the super specific reference mm-hmm. that, you know, it doesn't matter what culture you're raised in, you get the mm-hmm. joke. Mm-hmm. So they did a whole episode where everybody wanted the marble rye. You know, it's a pretty famous episode <laughs> of, of Seinfeld. Everybody wanted that marble rye. We got to stop off and pick up a marble rye from Schnitzer's. It's out of our way. Why 
why can't we pick up something at Lord's? It's right over here. No, we have to go to Schnitz's. I'll show these people something about taste. And our version of that was the day the Jordans drop. It's the day that Chicago <laughs> as a city shuts down because everybody, everybody's going to be rioting to get their hands mm-hmm. on the new, you know, Jordan Concords. I've been in this line since 6 a.m. and I'll be damned if I'm going to lose my spot to two long shirt wham. You want to come out of our church like that? Yeah, they only count. It's the specificity of the joke that really makes it work for a broad selection of audience because you don't have to be from Chicago to understand why it's funny that, you know, this Chicago club promoter died and his body is literally inside the club doing shots. Now, our very special guest, the reason for the season, they said I could not pull it off. Give it up for Shay! No, no, no. I saw him buried. I uh, saw it. Well, well. It turned out that that actually happened after that episode aired in one of the Carolinas, north or south, one of the Cackalacks. That incident actually happened. And people were like, oh, man, are, are they copying Southside? But we were like, no. That whole episode was based on Bashir's mom getting a, a, an actual invitation True. to a funeral that looked like a, a party flyer. Mm-hmm. So to a certain extent, we are always <laughs> copying the real life things that we see that, again, that we think are absurd, but we haven't seen on TV before. The, the biggest compliment you can be paid in a, in a Diallo and Bashir writer room is, I have never seen that <laughs> before. You know, to turn to Sherman Showcase specifically, like mm-hmm. you have some really unusual guests for a comedy show, maybe not for a music show, but mm. I still feel like even when I'm seeing musicians on the show, I'm seeing them in a, in a way I've never seen them before. Like Absolutely. Morris Day, who famously collaborated with Prince, narrates the story of Charade, yes. a fictional musician played by rapper Vic Mensa, who's mm-hmm. also from Chicago. And Charade's clearly modeled on Prince. When it really started to rain. Woo! Turn it on to the okay. And the lightning got dangerous. Turn it out to the crowd. Connect the dots. Connect I'm the connecting dots. the dots. That's what I'm trying. I'm trying <laughs> to connect the dots here. And, I mean, and even to like go on, like in the second season, y'all, you extend the Morris Day joke. Yes. Bringing in Jerome Benton, who many yes. people remember fondly as like Morris's sidekick in the yes. movie Purple Rain. Like the levels. These are such hilarious moments. Uh-huh. But they're, these are music <laughs> legends. Like how do you go about writing a, like a comedy bit for somebody like that? I call Jerome. I get, I get his number through like 18 channels. And I finally get it, Jerome on the phone. And his only concern was that, look, I haven't been on stage with Morris in over two decades. So if we do this, mm. we have to do it right. Like, that was his concern. And I will say that once they were on stage together, like, the magic is back. They're mm. having so much fun. And and apparently they, like, left set and went and got, like, some nice. really long meal together. You know what we're I mean? Bringing, we're I bringing music that, families back together. Come on, y'all. I was going to say... Bring your legends, Bring your legends together. back together. Minneapolis, thanks you. We're going to unite Oasis next. There's a bit in the new season where you have, I believe, Michael Blackson is that mm-hmm. playing? The man himself, yeah. It play- yeah. Yes. <laughs> Comedian yes. Michael Blackson, who's playing a Ghanaian music- musician based on Fela Kuti, yep. who sings about heading to the strip club to eat wings. Heading to the booty club. It's not what you think. I'm not here for the girl. I'm here for the wings. Which is, I mean, frankly, a very common experience. We've all been there. I mean, or maybe I'm being too honest, but we've it's all been legitimate. there. It's like, legitimate. It's legitimate. No, 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 listen. 
Sometimes the best wings in town are at that one strip club. And <laughs> look, it's the truth. Walk me through the songwriting process. <laughs> I'll say this. Um, a lot of what goes into making a new season of Sherman's is like making an album or making a song. It has to come from an emotional place. We always want to do the genre justice. We're not going to do a Prince song and, and make it sound silly. Just this morning, uh, something was sent to us and we were like, mm, yeah. sounds a little jokey. Mm. You know, like, let's let's really dial it in so that people can yep. blast it in their cars and people would never know that they were listening to a song from a comedy show. And uh, and I think that, I'm going to give a sure credit, I think he was the one who was like, let's make this song about the ATM <laughs> fees in a strip club. And I was like, yes. I go to pay for them. I go to the ATM. It's a crazy fee. To swing back to Southside for a minute, but I mean, this applies to Sherman Showcase as well, but, but both of your current shows, but especially Southside, have a strong sense of place. Absolutely. Like there are so many Chicagoisms on the show. Can I please have a couple of extra mild sauces? Yeah, ma'am, you can have as many as you want. Get, get us some mild sauce. Just grab a handful. You can have all the mild sauces, ma'am. Thank you. You're welcome. How did she get extra mild sauce? You just made a whole speech about mild sauce. She a black woman. Her life is hard enough. All right. <laughs> you know what? This you know, in that respect, Southside especially reminds me of, you know, some of my other favorite shows, specifically um, mm-hmm. the recently canceled Flatbush Misdemeanors, which was set in Flatbush, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and also Atlanta. Mm. And I kind of see this with Insecure, too, being such a show about L.A. Yeah. It, it feels like we're moving toward a space mm-hmm. in Black comedy where regional humor is kind of winning out, or at least winning out for what feels to me in a big way for the first time. W- what do y'all think about that? By sort of digging into those things from from our upbringing and from the Midwest that I love, it actually allows us to connect with everybody. Or you would go to their houses over Christmas and something and you would find out, oh, you guys play spades and we play spades too, you know. And then obviously spades is something where, you know, I've seen fights, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Like spades ends friendships and it usually ends friendships with people on the same team (laughs) who are mad at each other for what the other person played. But this goes back to our conversation about, in some ways, black nerds and about us letting people's ideas flourish. There are so many shows where ideas like that would have been killed in the writer room. And I think Diallo and I, we have experiences yeah. where our ideas mm. like that were killed in writer rooms. I'll never forget, this is a story we tell off. I'll never forget, we had a, we had a meeting at a network and we were doing notes on one of our, our, our scripts. And one of the executives was just like, now hold on now, you say that this such thing happens at the Black Mall. Is that a real thing? Is there such a thing as a Black Mall? And then I was, we're going like, how are you even asking us that? Yes. And this one right down the street, if you just take uh, uh, Crenshaw right down. Or you can take the 405 to Fox Hills back then. It's Westfield now. You know, Atlanta, Atlanta had about five of them. So it just for, it, we so, had Greenbrier. We had Greenbrier before we took over <laughs> Linux. But I, w- I would argue that that is the difficulty. That's the difficulty faced by the content creator of color and specifically the black content creators like how do you how do you do a thing Mm. that you know is funny but somebody has to approve it who doesn't get it at all it's hard to be funny when you're explaining exactly and they're unaware that they don't get it i feel very lucky that we were able to get stuff through the filter i think it took a lot of energy and effort to get both shows under the air but now that we're in a situation where who knows how much longer we have these shows so now when writers and thinkers and people come to us and, and pitch us something that's very specific to our experience and our shared experience, we can be like, yeah, let's do it. Thanks again to Bashir Salahuddin and Diallo Riddle. The first two seasons of Southside are on HBO Max and the third is forthcoming. And you can watch Sherman's Showcase, which is in its second season, 
on the IFC channel and Hulu. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Liam McBain, Janet Ujangli, Jamila Huxtable. It was produced and edited by Jessica Mendoza. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the LifeKit podcast from NPR.